You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. cool to be here man how are you doing it's good you know i mean we uh we go way back mike um i i feel comfortable telling the listeners that uh i think i gained mike's trust when he parked a completely redone early 70s international scout in my driveway with the keys for like a week and I did not end up upside down in a cornfield at midnight. And uh, and ever since that point in time, I think we had an understanding uh, that we could trust each other. And I was fortunate enough to fish with Mike a couple of times. And he, he fishes out of Stewart, Florida. And since I'm in the Chesapeake Bay, I consider that area to be Valhalla. But Mike's lived there for the bulk of his life. He's done everything from lifeguard. He does a lot of work with captains clean water with the Lego issues and um, and unfortunately much like me in the Chesapeake Bay he's seen some serious declines uh, but Mike tell us a little bit about your history uh, during the good times I know you were I know you were a, a, a big snow hunter and a, and a lot of other things but let's let's let the listeners find out a little bit about you buddy uh, you know there's not much to tell I, I, I grew up in South Florida I grew up in Miami till I was 12 and uh, moved to New Jersey, lived in New Jersey till I was 18, came back to uh, Jensen Beach, Florida to go to college. You know, it's, it's pretty hard to grow up in bare feet and then live somewhere else and, and know you have this winter where you could be barefoot all the time. Um, so I came back really to go to college just to be somewhere warm and to get back to some fishing. And... Um, I went to uh, Florida Institute of Technology for um, aquaculture, basically fish farming. I got out of school, and I had I had three job offers. I could go to Belize and raise shrimp for six dollars an hour, and all the cormorants I could shoot. I could go to Seattle and raise uh, salmon for six twenty-five an hour, and all the eagles I could photograph. Or I could go to work on the beach as a lifeguard for fourteen dollars an hour, and all the ways I could surf. And uh, <clears throat> I took my lifeguard job, and it was actually kind of cool. I um, uh, paid off my student loans from that job. I have, uh, you know, it's a full-time job where all, all the lifeguards are EMTs. Uh, pretty heavy duty out on the beach here. A lot of rescues. Um, full-time all winter long with, with um, high-risk retirement. 
Um, and while I was doing that, you know, it, it, Florida's expensive to live in, particularly if you live on the coast. And uh, so I, I had other jobs. I worked in a tackle shop at night. And from there, I got into guiding. And, and that in itself is kind of a crazy story. Um, the Mets had built their spring training park here in Port St. Lucie. And I was working in a tackle shop one night. And um, Mel Stottlemyre and Davey Johnson. Davey Johnson was the, the manager of the Mets, and Mel Stottlemyre was a pitching coach. They came in, and they wanted to go fishing. And we really didn't have any guides in the area. And I said, oh, well, I'm, go you know, I'm going tomorrow if you guys want to go with me. And I took him out fishing. We had a good time on the water. And, and Davey told me afterwards, he's like, look, you know, I've, I've fished with guides all over the country. You have the personality of one. And uh, you know what you're doing. You should probably be a fishing guy. And I, I had never really thought about it, ever. And uh, they just kind of talked me into it. And, you know, six months later, I had my captain's license and started guiding. So I, I was doing that. Then I started writing for the Miami Herald, uh, writing the fishing pages for them. And, and that gravitated to magazines, to books. Um, so I was, you know, guiding, writing, working on the beach. I, I really don't have days off. I don't think I've had a day off, you know, on a regular schedule since I was probably about 24 years old. Um, and then you find that with a lot of people. You just got to hustle all the time just to make enough money. But, you know, when you do the things you love, um, you get to go to work. You don't have to go to work. And I've been, I've been fortunate in that. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, at the same time, I've seen the changes in this place. You know, when, it, when I first moved here, um, the Indian River was, you know, the, the most diverse estuary in North America. And, it, it, you know, it was just big fields or meadows of seagrass, fish everywhere. You walk out on a dock and there's mullet and there's pinfish and, you know, it was nothing to see. I'd, you know, snook come in and feed and to go out and catch, snook was pretty easy. Uh, and, you know, over the years I've been here to see sort of the destruction of it. Um, so I, I feel fortunate to have been here when it was good and to have seen the good times and, and um, you know, the beauty of this place. And, and don't get me wrong, the place is still beautiful and it still has opportunity, but uh, you work considerably harder and, and it's going downhill quick as, as is much as South Florida. And, and I think, uh, you know, if we don't do something fast, it's, it's probably going to be irreversible. You know, Mike, I'm seeing the same stuff in the Chesapeake back. You know, you, I was fortunate, um, Cody's listening in with us and Cody can hop in at any point in time. We were both friends with him. Um, but Cody's from the, you know, he's from the Northeast and he lives down by you in Florida now. And, uh, and I, I was around for the Striper Day when it was nothing, you know, to go to certain areas and, and catch a hundred fish, have two or three guys, you know, fly fishing on a small boat with your stuff. And, you know, you catch it, you catch it a dozen, 20 fish over 45 and then you die. Yeah, whether the winter at the Bainbridge Tunnel or the spring on the Tuscaloosa of Flats. Now, it's not even worth going. You know, people don't go. Like, you would, you would have to wait two hours in line at, at a restaurant that I, I swear I got food poisoning every time I went. And I have the stomach of like a billy goat. And it, it was packed because it was like,
restaurant down there. And, and now, I mean, like Humble is the parking lot. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the devastation that the lack of fish has caused. And, and you see guys now online and they're, they're like stretching out 22 and 24 inch stripers or 26 inch stripers. And, you know, I tell people, I tell the younger generation that, you know, in the middle of the summer, we went out and, and I didn't go south of the Bay Bridge. Yeah, and it, you know that's one of the sad things that that I see is the the people that are just coming into to the industry or coming into fishing now they they never saw it when it was really good so they don't they can't gauge it. I mean they look at it now and they they think that's how it always was. You know when they, when they look at the Indian River where I am and the entire middle of the river the, so the Indian River is you know two to three feet deep on an average depth and it was just all seagrass and and it's all gone. And I'm not saying there's not a blade of grass. I'm saying show me a blade. It's gone. And it looks like a moonscape. So you remove that habitat. You know, when you remove the habitat, you remove the, the forage fish and, and you know, you, the shrimp and the pinfish and everything that, that is out there that the game fish eat. When you, when you remove the food, the game fish have no reason to be there. <clears throat> so, you know, they don't know what it's like to have these beautiful areas out in the middle of nowhere that you could go fish. And, and, you know, and be alone. Now you, you're relegated to fishing shorelines. And, you know, there's so many anglers. There's so much angling pressure. It's constantly boats going by, boats going by, boats going by. So, you know, those kids today, they don't know what it's like to be sitting out on a flat in the middle of nowhere where you're the only person around. There's not a boat wake. There's nothing. It's just solitude. And, you know, you're using light tackle and hooking 20, 25, 30-pound snook. You catch... 40 a morning and it was nothing, you know, same with an eight and 10 pound trout every morning. It was just commonplace. And now, you know, and, and this is a really good example. Uh, in April and May, I would fish out on the flats and I, and my clients would want to snook fish. They weren't really looking for trout and trout were a incidental catch. And when you get close to the inlets here, you don't see small trout. Uh, because the bluefish come in during the winter time, and if, if a trout's under four pounds, a two-pound bluefish will swim up to a four-pound trout and bite his tail off. And once he bites the tail off, then it can just piecemeal him and eat him piece by piece. So um, you don't see the little trout in those areas. So, uh, you know, trout were sort of my incidental catch when I was snook fishing. I shot for 30 snook a morning on a, you know, a four-hour trip, and we'd always catch two or three trout. And in, in the months of April and May, I would probably catch a hundred trout every six pounds. And the, this year I've yet to catch a trout. Last year I caught one trout the total. The year before I caught one trout total. The year before that I caught two. The year before that I caught two. I mean, you take the habitat away, those fish are gone. And, you know, guys now, I, I just saw somebody's social post about catching a 30 inch trout yesterday. And, you know, 30-inch trout were common. We caught them every single day that we tried to catch one. Um, so, it, it, you know, I, I just feel bad um, that that a lot of people just don't know what the fishery was like and that they just assume, you know, this is how it is. And it's not. You know, we can make a difference and make it go back to how it was. It just takes time and effort. 
it'll rebound. Time. Of course. Mike, I'll tell you one of the craziest things. If you look at uh, that movie, Artificial, which talks about aquaculture, and which I was taking from the school for, it's kind of one of the reasons why I bring it up. When Mount St. Helens erupted, there was a couple of rivers that they were stocking steelhead in. And they stopped stocking steelhead in those rivers, and they said it would take 10,000 years for them to come back. Because it was just, you know, a hundred feet of mud and, and volcanic ash and, and trees that basically lined the rivers. And within, I think it was like 10 or 15 years, the population of steelhead in those rivers quadrupled without stocking. Because, and that was after the largest volcanic eruption in modern human history mm-hmm. in the lower 48. Um, and, and they said that the rivers were gone. They were erased from the earth, and within a little over a decade, they came back. pouring back. Um, That's a you know the the nature made the systems to to last, and you know it's when we mess with the systems or impact the systems as when you know the the long term changes take place. Sadly, so you know clearly, Mike. I mean, a, a lot of the stuff that you detail in is directly related to the Lake Okeechobee runoff issues. And you are on the eastern side of ground here. And I know that you have, uh, you know, you've definitely been a voice for for reason and for the resource uh, when it comes to the water issues that you guys are facing. Um, and I know you're, some work with Tappins, which is a group that the Guys Association just has nothing but respect for. Um, so if you want to just tell the viewers, you know, some of the progress that you guys have made, because from what I understand, from a guy who's looking from the sidelines, maybe knows a tiny bit more about fisheries issues than the average guy, it seems like y'all are fighting off some chunks and, and gaining some ground. So, you know, well, a little bit of know. good news in the world. Let's let's get people up to date. There is, you know, there is some good news. I mean, the, the the comprehensive Everglades restoration plan is is happening, and they broke ground on the reservoir south of the lake, the EAA reservoir. So, for those that aren't familiar with the, with the, the, the problems, is um, you know, water from Lake Okeechobee used to overflow and run down into the Everglades. And as it, as it went to the Everglades, it went very slow through the grass, what was known as a river of grass, and the grass filtered the water. Um, so eventually when it was delivered into the Everglades, it was very clean water. And that maintains the natural saltwater, freshwater balance. You know, if, if uh, in Florida Bay, if they don't get fresh water the, through evaporation, they get too salty. And that creates their big algae blooms that kill their grass and and even kill mangroves. It kills everything. Um, so, um, you know, back in the in the you know early 1900s, they they uh, made the Everglades National Park, and then back by the 40s, they started making the the EAA area, the Everglades Agricultural Area, which is south of Lake Okeechobee. Um, and they, you know, they designed it to be dried out. It has beautiful muck. Um, you know, it's just all the grass that's decayed onto the bottom have created a foot of just 
beautiful, beautiful stuff to grow plants in. Um, and the, the hope was that they would make, you know, be a, a spot for winter vegetables for the country. And, um, you know, in, there are some winter vegetables grown there, probably about 7% of all the, all the farming done there is vegetable. Uh, the rest is sugarcane. And, uh, so, uh, you know, sugar's dried up the, the EAA. There's not really a, a very good source of water going south. What they did when they, when they did that to dry it up, they, they blocked the water coming out of the lake. They built a dike, blocked the water, and they sent it to the east coast and the west coast through the Caloosahatchee River to the west coast and through the St. Lucie River to the east coast. Now, the Caloosahatchee got water naturally. The St. Lucie River did not. Um, so um, the lake now is, is kept artificially high in the winter as a water supply for agriculture. And when storms come in the summer and the rainy months, they uh, have to discharge the water. They can't let it overflow because it'll, you know, it'll swamp the town south of the lake. So they discharge it to our coast. So we get all the runoff. We get all the, the pesticides, the herbicides, all the chemicals in the lake, plus all the detritus, all the, all the matter that's on the bottom. And that's basically killing off our coastal estuaries and feeding the red tide blooms and just uh, really destroying all of South Florida. They're, you know, the Everglades are being choked off, and because of it, they're being choked off, they're hypersaline, and uh, you know their their grass is dying, and that's the largest seagrass meadow in the world. And so the the the, the government passed a comprehensive Everglades restoration plan, which is SERP. That was 23 years ago, coming up on 24 years. It was a 20-year plan, and over the first 20 years, nothing got done. Um, it, you know, everything just gets stalled. There's no funding. Uh, they all had, you know, the idea they're gonna, they're going to do well, but nobody ever did anything. And so recently, um, you know, the state of Florida has come up with their side of the money. Half the money's federal, half the money's state, yeah, and the feds are kicking in, you know, a certain amount each year. Um, and it's, they've already broken ground on the EAA reservoir. Um, they, they've been at it almost a year now. Be a, I think it'd be about a year in August. And, uh, you know, the funding isn't there completely yet. There is an opportunity right now through um, the, the presidential infrastructure plan to fund it completely. Um, if that happens, it'd be built in five or six years. Um, if not, it, we're probably looking at more like eight or ten years, depending on the funding and how long it takes to, to get it. But things are moving. You know, it's nice to see. And the same, um, we, have a, we have a congressman here named Brian Mast who, who came up with an idea. Um, you know, they keep, they keep the lake artificially high in the winter. You know, what happens if we lower it, you know, and just lower it in the winter? And... Um, you know, agriculture interests. So when I say agriculture interests, read sugar. Um, said, uh, well, you know, we got to be assured we get our water. You know, it's, it's a public resource. Where, where, in, where in this country do you get your water free from supplied by the taxpayers? Um, everywhere else has builds their own reservoir and captures their own water. Um, so. Um, there's been drought years, there's been bad years, and the lake's been kept, been at really low levels, and they've always gotten their water. So the answer to all that was that you, you've never had a problem. You've always gotten your water. So let's, let's move it lower. 
So uh, they, they lowered the lake one year, uh, a couple years ago, during the winter time, just as a, an experiment to do something different. And, you know, the ag fields got, everybody got their water. There was no problem. When the rainy season comes, it fills the lake back up. But they didn't have to release water to the coast that year. So, you know, that was good for the environment. Um, so there's a, there's a plan that the Army Corps engineers has to follow. And they're working on that plan right now. And, you know, it's just a fight tooth and nail to get anybody but agriculture considered. You know, think about the people on the coast. Think about businesses elsewhere. Think about well, like, the correct, water quality. Think about the quality here. of life. Like, there's a lot of low-income communities that are right there at ground zero around the lake. There are. And, and there it's, are. like, horrific. You know, because if it's bad by you, it's certainly more concentrated and it's leaving the lake there. And you know, these are, a lot of these folks are subsistence fishermen and they're literally fishing in like cyanobacteria. That, yeah. that is correct, Lake Okeechobee right? has some major issues. It, yeah. it would not surprise me to see a collapse on the lake in the next couple of years. There's, there's major issues in the lake and a lot of it's just legacy pollution. that has been there. Nitrogen and, and phosphorus. It's just been, you know, years ago, the, the, the ag fields when they were when they were flooded during the winter during the rainy season, if they got flooded, they could just pump the water back into the lake, and everything that was on the field came came back in the lake. All the all the herbicides, all the all the uh, uh, nitrogen and phosphorus that they use, um, you know, for the plants themselves. Everything that's on the on the ground comes back into the lake, and uh, and it's just been there for so long. <clears throat> You know, Mike, Mike uh, you to, know. A, to your point, you know, I'm, I always try to make these these, uh, these issues that, like, we all, we all suffer from the same thing. It's just the fish look different, and, and the, the, facts Pretty much. Are, the facts are just, like, tweaked a little bit. So take a guess how many chickens, you know I live on the eastern shore, like the Del Mar mm-hmm. Peninsula. Take a guess at how many chickens are grown here a year. So I, so I know a little bit. I'm going to guess 10 million. 500 million. That's insane. I, you know, I, I know, I know pig farms and chicken farms are the big, are the big deals on the Chesapeake. Yeah. There's, there's and, 500 million. And that, I mean, that's a couple of years old. There's, and they, they've, uh, oddly enough, they've come out with more efficient ways, you know, where it's like, you know, the chicken houses now have like multiple floor. I mean, it's, it's insane. And, and I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers at the chicken farmers because they literally don't make anything. Um, mm-hmm. The actual guys who have the, 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 the chicken grow, grow operation on their property, it's the big developments, the, you know, it's, it's the big chicken companies that are, that are the ones. Commercial that are, agriculture, yeah. commercial, all, all those commercial ones. And, and yeah. really, I mean, you can almost, you can almost look at any major problem with the waterways anywhere in this country and use the term greed. Yeah. So, and that pretty much sums it up the issue. You know, when I lived here, when I first moved here, there were chicken legs everywhere. And I, I didn't understand crazy. it. I didn't understand. Like, I didn't get it. Like if you went to anywhere where the water was and there was a pier or there were rocks, there were chicken legs. And I was like, well, I guess people are going to Royal Farms and get in a bucket of chicken before they go fishing. That seemed like a reasonable, you know, assumption. Mm-hmm. And then 
the longer that I lived here, I noticed in the springtime, the seagulls were flying east. So they were coming off the water and flying onto land where I live. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Like in the morning? Like why aren't they going out looking for bait? And in the evening you'd see them fly home. Well, I put started putting two and two together and they were flying into the fields because one of the main sources of fertilizer for some of these farms is chicken wings. And guess what they do with the chickens that die on the farm before they can go to harvest? They throw their little corpses into the piles of chicken shit. So they're spread onto the fields. And I guess over time, the seagulls figured this out. And the seagulls aren't strong enough to break the bones to get to the marrow. So all the little chicken legs that I've been finding over the years were the seagulls grabbing them from the fields, flying back to the water, and dropping them on rocks and docks to break them open. Wow. And I was just like, you know, probably the saddest thing I've ever seen in my life. Because the fertilizer is killing us. You know, you have you have rivers south of me that have like no population. No population. And and their water quality, you know, they do, do the report card every year and their water quality is terrible. Makes no sense. And you're like, how, how, is it, yeah. how is it nobody lives there and they have all this nitrogen and phosphorus pollution? And and it's I'm not going to go too deep into our problems, but everyone's blaming it on Pennsylvania because we get like 50-something percent of our fresh water from the Susquehanna, and they're saying, oh, it's the Conowingo Dam, and it's all that. Now, you know, when you grow 500 million chickens somewhere, and you spread their poop as cheap fertilizer on top of a field, and generally speaking, somewhere. spring is our rainy season when they fertilize the fields. It doesn't really take, you don't have to have a bunch of letters behind your name to be like, I think I know what's going on here. You know? Well, and you, 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 I mean, if you want to take that even deeper, it, you, you know, some of that's going to seep into the, into the groundwater column, you know, and that's going to be seeping into your water supply. Oh, sure. 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 But hey, we have cheap chicken and, and cheap sugar. Plenty of water to drink, right? Nice. <laughs> so There's a reason me. everybody carries bottled water anymore. Uh, I just, I don't even know. I don't even know. So, listen, you used to be, we talked about this a lot, too. You know, it's interesting to me over the life of the fisherman, how things change. And, like, what you consider to be a good death. And I know one of the things that I love about you the most is I know how My son is 11 now. Yeah, he was just a god. He was just a little baby. I mean, he was freaking newborn when he first met. It's worse. It's, it goes faster, it's man. It's crazy. I mean, it's crazy how fast. Uh, I, I had a memory come up on social media from eight or nine years ago where he caught his first friend. And I said it to him, and he was like, wow, I can't ever, I don't even remember that. I was so young. And I'm like, I remember it like it was yesterday. So, yeah, it goes. So, um, you know, I think as we change as, as people over the course of time, our, our fishing goals change. So, you know, as an example, when I was a much younger fisherman a very long time ago, I wanted to catch the biggest and the most. That was, that was all I wanted to do. And like now, I was incredibly 
fish that you know are just easily uh, easily rewarded with you know fun ass fish on a five six weight. And to me, that's more fun than catching a forty-five inch striper or a ten-pound bluefish or whatever. And that's to me that that just to see them kind of come back and know from now until like the middle of October, my son and I can just have a blast doing that, and it's easy and accessible. So like, you know, your fishing changes through the course of your life. And as a younger person, you know, you told me that you were after the big daddy snook. You know, you wanted. Wanted that my, my, uh, as a in my youth, everything was about ego for me. Yeah, uh, you know, in, in my early twenties, everything was about catching the biggest fish, and and I hung out with a group of anglers who were very hardcore, very dedicated, um, and very dialed in. And you know, the the tackle we used, the fight, none of that mattered. It was just catching that fish, uh, and and. Um, you know, for, for ages, you know, for probably six or seven years of my life, I lived on the bridges. I was just a poor guy. You know, I worked as a lifeguard on my free time. I would get out on the bridges. Um, I was going to school, same deal. And, uh, I would fish straight hundred pound test and, uh, a rod that you could take the, you know, the eyes off it and play pool with, um, no flex to it. And, uh, you know, and, and a one pound bait, a lot of times they were, they were either bunkers or they were uh, a one pound mullet and trying to catch big snook. And I, and I would caught a lot and it, and I had this deal. I had back on the bridges, we would have these gaffs and you would lower the gaff down and down your line and then you'd hook the fish in the face and the gaff would be on a longer, it was like a, a treble hook with a weight and it would be on some thick rope and you would pull the fish up, the, up to the top of the bridge. And that's how you got them onto the bridge. And when I pulled him up on the bridge, I would pull him over the rail. I would slam him on the bridge and I would leave the hook in his face. And I always had a little cooler and I would go over to my little cooler and get a Coke out. And I would sit back, I would walk away from the fish and I would sit back and drink a Coke and let the crowd gather around that fish. And it was a hundred percent ego. I was a hundred percent a douchebag back then. Um, and didn't get what those fish were for and, and, you know, even what I was doing or how I was impacting those fish. And, and I did it for a while. And, you know, what changed me, again, was ego. Um, I, was, I was fishing on a, on a bridge one night on a catwalk underneath the bridge. And uh, we were all throwing the same lure. It's a, in the springtime, everybody would throw the same lure. And, uh, you know, there's a bunch of hot shots there, a bunch of people. On a, on a typical night, there would be 40 or 50 people on this catwalk. And, uh, and I caught a big fish. Um, not demonstrably big, probably, you know, for a snook, it was 20, probably 27 pounds, something like that, a, a, but a good fish, but not, not something that, you know, really would draw a crowd or anything. And, uh, I, I pulled it up on the bridge and back then people didn't let fish go. Um, they kept them and they ate them. And, and those big ones were not necessarily very good to eat. The, the ones that are good to eat are the smaller ones. And, I knew I was going to be out of town. I was leaving town in the morning and I knew I wasn't going to have time to clean the fish and I wasn't going to leave it in a cooler. Um, and I wasn't going to waste the fish. So I just said, uh, you know, screw it. I'm going to throw it back. And I threw that fish back. And every single time I went back to that catwalk for 10 years, I would go back to that catwalk at that in the springtime, the fish has fish. 
and every time I went, somebody would go, oh, that's that guy that let that giant snook go. And that kind of fed my ego, like letting them go. And then I became the guy who just let them all go. And through that process, you know, I, I realized how important it is to, you know, just keep what you're going to eat and how you need to make sure that enough survive. And particularly those big breeders survive um, to populate the species. I mean, you guys probably see it all with striped bass these days. And then, and then, you know, and, and then that just naturally filters into um, just treating fish right. You know, I see people all the time, you know, will catch a small fish or an undersized fish or a catfish or something and just like pitch it off their boat. And, you know, that, that fish has a purpose. You know, Mike, we, Mike, we talked about this. I mean, Mike, my ethnic blood boils if, when I see waste. And it's, Same here. I, I mean, look, if you're going to use it, <laughs> I, I, and it's legal, I don't have moral ground. I don't either. Question. I mean, you know, if you're following the rules, you're following the rules. But, like, I see yeah. people gapping cow nose rays because they're annoying, you know, that they hit a lure. And I see it, it with Barracuda. I mean, what, like, why are you killing that fish? Because it, it because you hooked too, it. You're too lazy to get it off the hook. Don't mm -hmm. go fishing. That's pretty much it. For God's sakes, like it, you know, it's just, so you know. I understand that like you're saying it was ego driven that you start to you start to throw stuff back, but you know, for me, you know, I grew up hunting, fishing. Formative years of my youth were kind of south and you know there's not a real big conservation ethic there and you know whether it looks just piles of crappie or you mm. know just freeze it all oh, and eat it later or give it trout. to the neighbors you know first first saltwater fish i call the speckled trout like bonnie trout and you know family fish fries and all that oh you know we need some, need some trout with the with the crawfish boils you know all this kind of stuff and like for me like, I just got to a point, and it was the same with deer hunting, and the same with everything else. And I'm just like, I really want to have to clean this thing. I mean, the last mm -hmm. couple of years I deer hunted, I let more deer walk by, and then I finally just, it dawned on me. I'm like, why am I sitting up here freezing my ass off with a bow in my hand when I won't shoot these things? Because I essentially don't want to go through the whole mess of, you know, just doing everything with it. And then I'll get really upset if I let some of it get freezer burned. And you go through this whole like maturation process. And I'll tell you the thing, the thing that just, I, you know, they call it a sport. To me, it is the furthest thing from a sport is bow fishing. Uh, I mean, when they, I don't get that at all. I don't either. care if it's a carp. I don't, they shoot gar. You want to talk about something that has a place in the ecosystem? Gar. Yeah. I mean, people can playing the carper in base in the north. I get it. I get it. Blah, blah, blah. What are you doing shooting a car? Because let me tell you something. That's, you want to talk about something that's a lot of work if you want to eat it? Uh, that's where I was going with it. Are you going to eat that? If you're going to if you're going to shoot it and eat it, I mean, call it what it is. It's harvesting. And it's a, you know, it's not fishing. It's harvesting. And it's a weird way, maybe even an irreverent way to take a, a fish. Like, I mean, let's be honest, man. Like, it's like, their scales aren't like normal fish scales. Yeah. 
it's this is a prehistoric fish. Um, you know, and, and I people, yeah, okay, look, yeah, yeah, there's some problems with commercial fishery, but I mean, what we have, you and I have just described, and I think it's one another one of the million reasons why we get along so well, is like we're pretty introspective, forward facing, and we see the problems within our own sector, the recreational sector. Oh yeah, you've got a bunch of, you know. Some days you, you got some clowns out there, man, and, um, and and just killing stuff just to kill it, or because you're too lazy to get the hook out of it, or because you want a big pat on the back and let that fish mm-hmm. go to waste. Or feeding your neighbors who, you know, they're just taking the fish just to be kind to you. Yeah. Like, you don't even you don't even know where you're going with that fish. Yeah. I, and you see it on every level. I mean, you see the guys, it, it's still a big practice in the Keys. If charter boats come in, they got 60 dolphin. They got three guys on board. Yeah, they're all two pounds a piece. They wonder where the hell it, the I mean, dolphin yeah, they're, you're just going, you know, why wouldn't you let those grow? And how many, oh, really, how many do you want to clean? Oh, Mike, they were I want to clean one. I, I don't even want to, I don't want to do deep of a dive on this, but like we were listening to some South Atlantic Council calls and they were blaming the lack of dolphin on the six or seven long liners that are left in the country. Oh, that's ridiculous. And you're like, dude, your your limit, like if you look and see what your boat limit is and what the average size fish is, yeah. and you know how fast these fish grow, and you're blaming like the six or seven long liners that are left in yeah. business that are all like over 70 years old. Like, dude, look in the mirror. You know, I mean, What about was, the 20,000 boat gauntlet it's got to get through just to get through the keys? It's bad. I mean, it's, it's, bad stuff so i think you know one of the things that connects us all besides we all have shitty water problems and fisheries management sucks and all of these other things you know uh, we were real fortunate that cody introduced us to uh to some of the guys at captains you know um hit it off with benny i did uh which probably comes as a surprise to you mike you know, he's a great guy. We're action oriented. I'll put it to you that way. Like we're not, we're not afraid to walk up to somebody and slap them right in the mouth. <laughs> like, so, well, you, you, know. You, you know, what's funny about that, Tony is it, you, you don't wake up and grow up thinking I'm going to be an activist. Right. You know, you've just become one naturally. You get tired of seeing stuff crapped on all the time and just ridiculous policies. And, nah. I'd rather and just be fish. Your fish disrespected yeah. and your habitat disrespected and all of it. And you just go, if I don't get active, you know, nothing will change. And and it's interesting because the majority of the guys, if if uh I, I notice this if you if you go to to an IGFA legendary captain's dinner and it's these old captains that are that are being, you know, honored, every single one of them talks about conservation. Because every single one of them seen the changes in their lifetime. And I think that's sort of, you know, the process. You start out catching a fish and enjoying it. And then after a while, you, you, you see the changes and you see the fish being abused. And then you're out to protect it. And, you know, the, the catching a fish and, and harvesting the fish isn't, isn't your priority anymore. It's being on the water and relaxing and just seeing all the beauty that's out there. And the things that, that people who've never been on the water will never even be able to imagine that you see when you know, you're Mike, on the water. When you, when you, find, when, you know, we're, we're not there yet, but one day we will be. And you know, you, you know, when we're there in our time, we know our time's getting short. And the 
this will go around on Earth. You know, I think one of the one of the things we can want more than anything is to teach that next generation what we know, yep. so that information isn't lost. And you know, you know, me and Lefty were, you know, pretty <laughs> pretty solid buds. And one of his favorite things to say was, "Knowledge that isn't shared is wasted." And and you know, we want that next generation and, and people want to shit on millennials all the time and all that kind of stuff. But again, I'll bring Coach's name up. You know, there, there is a, there's a handful of them that impress the hell out of me. And I think that there's, you know, there is hope for the future. And, and I don't, you know, I want them to be better than us. I don't want them to be like us. I want, I want them to take what, what we took a lifetime to understand and hit the ground running with it. You know, that's what it's prove it. You know, you build on the knowledge. You don't just keep saying the same thing. So I think there is there is some hope for the future, um, and we're not quite out of the game yet. But you know, man, we know a lot. We've seen a lot. But it, it you know, what I will tell you is that the uh, Generation Y that that you know they're they're more plugged into their um, computers and social media and networking. And they're a little different than, than we are, you know, they really just, they don't really care about what they catch. They go out there to have fun and they're, that's their mentality. It's a little different, you know, and, and, and the older generation, it's real easy to poo poo these kids who are out there. Oh, you're not hardcore enough, or you're not adventurous enough, or you're not chasing this. And they, you know, they really don't care. They go, they go chase a fish that they've wanted to chase like a permit and they don't catch it. They don't. They really don't give a damn. They they just enjoyed being on the water with their friends and coming back and drinking beers and partying and having a good time. And um, that's kind of refreshing, actually. And the other side of that is, I think when you look at the different um, sort of specters of fishing, um, the fly community seems to be the one most conservation oriented. They seem to be the one that are you know they tend to be techies and they tend to be more into what's going on with the fish and protecting their areas and, and being involved in conservation. I, and, and I'm not poo-pooing the, the spinning or the offshore or the inshore or the saltwater gang. It's just a, like a different mentality. Yeah, you know what it is, Mike? Like, like um, look, if you're into saltwater fly fishing, you're going to be a saltwater You like hard stuff. Like you just like make you like making, good point. you like making shit harder than it needs to be. It's That's definite. And and I think that kind of mentality predisposes itself to like keep peeling back that onion and saying like, well, you know, what did it used to be like, and what, are, what are, and, and how are, why, why are yeah. why things changed, and what can I do to make a difference? And like, you know, you said you don't you don't wake up in the morning and you're like, well, I'm going to be an activist, and I want I want a whole bunch of people to hate me. Just because I have the canastas to, to write something in a blog to tell people the truth, right? And you don't wake up saying that shit. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the reality is, you know, you, you just, you, you, I think you wake up one day and you're like, it has to be nobody's said. Nobody's doing it. Like, nobody's doing it. Yeah. If you don't, if it's not said, then it'll, it'll continue. Yeah. That's a definite. And, uh, you know, uh, the other side of the fly, the fly group is a lot of them aren't out there just to catch fish to eat. You know, that's, they're not their sole purpose is to go and catch something to eat. 
And I think when when that's the mentality is the reason I fish is to is to catch something to eat. Um, I think people feel like they have to kill and then they get overzealous and then, you know, well, you, you, you've caught eight dolphin, but the school's still here. I'm just going to keep taking them. And, 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 and then you get back to the dock and go, why did I do that? Now I got to clean all these fish and I'm, there's no way I can eat all this fish and it's going to freeze like crap. And you know, now what am I going to do? So through, through experience, you get educated and that's where in saltwater tends to come uh, as guys just from experience go, yeah, we, I, I just can't keep this up and I don't really want to because there's no reason for me to, you know, you, you, you kill a cobia. How many people is a oh, single man. cobia going to feed? A 30-pound cobia is going to feed your, your family yeah. and then some. So why do, why do you need to kill two or three or four? Well, you know, I, I, Micah, I don't get it. One of the mm-hmm. things I think that's really different about where you are versus where we are is like, you know, from my perspective, being up in the middle region of the Chesapeake Bay, in, a, in an area that used to be just stunningly pristine and is not anymore, is something, you know, some of the fish that, like, not all anglers, but some anglers look at it as trash fish. In, in Florida, like, I, I would give my little finger on my left hand. Like, cut it off. Like, go get a, go get a, a cleaver. Take that thing off and wear it as a necklace. Uh, if we had like 20 pound Jack Craval, and I know you guys catch a lot bigger friggin' Jack Craval than 20 pounds, or, you know, the Albies, what you guys call Benitas, and people shit on them and call them trash fish. And, and it just blows my mind. Like, you know, like we're talking with our board member down in Florida, Michael Mowry, and he's got like, you know, this, this kind of global experience being a guy, and I'm not going to, Michael, don't worry, I'm not going to do the German accent, but it's hysterical. So it sounds like you're talking to Arnold Schwarzenegger, basically. And uh, and he's like, Tony, I don't understand. You know, I, I run these trips in the Maldives. Guys are paying 10 grand for a week, and and they're getting like two shots at a GT. And and, I, and I'm, I'm having my friends fly over from Europe and book me for a week because they're getting freaking... 30 shots and it, it, it jacks the 40 mm-hmm. pounds. They miss one and it's a school of, school of 20 junkyard dogs frothing. Cody sent me drone pics and all that kind of stuff. And and people treat them like garbage. Like garbage. Mm-hmm. Especially like the juveniles. And you're like, you don't just because like, I would do anything to be able to get into my boat and run 10 or 15 miles and find some school of massive jacks or, or live chum up a huge pot of albies. Again, you guys call them bonitos mm-hmm. and boneheads or whatever. Our and those are big. Different. Oh, Jesus. Hey, listen, I went fishing for the listeners. I went fishing with Mike. These things, these are what we would call Tatanka. Like, these are grande albies that they catch. These are not like seven and eight pound Rhode Island albies. These things are jacked up, and, and to be honest, you really don't want to be fishing with, like, I mean, I would not bring an 8-weight out. No, you'd be in trouble. Because I'd probably have a 7-piece 8-weight. You know, I'm much more comfortable 9-10 for these albies. They are jacked up albies, and it, it used to be an incredible fishery. And this is something we share. I just want to frame this for a second. We have no data on this. 
we don't know because Albies are so numerous. We do not know if the Albies in Florida swim to the Azores, if they swim to the Vineyard, if they just go out in the middle of the ocean and swim around in circles. We don't know jack about Albies. Nothing. And we are seeing a decline in Albies. So, Mike, what's going on on the East Coast is we have bluefish or overfish. We have no bluefish. You know, back in the day, catching a 10 to 14 pound bluefish was nothing. I haven't seen one in years. We have no stripers. I mean, yeah, you know, there's pockets and, and our guys. If you don't have a boat big enough to run offshore to go after the bluefin and the yellowfin bite, you're having a hard time making a living as a guy uh, on the East Coast. If you don't do like ground fish, you don't catch black sea bass or That's stuff like, you know, other people. So a couple of years ago, the only thing that got our guys through so we have this one robust 2015-year class of stripers. Before they were really big enough to catch, when they were just like little punky 15, 18-inch fish, and you, you know, guides didn't feel right taking people out for them, we had a couple of good runs of albies. And that kept our guys alive. You know, nice albie runs. People were excited to catch them on the fly. We don't get them for, you know, just for a couple of weeks, a month or two. And then they kind of went away. And then I'm talking to you in Florida, and I'm finding out some pretty horrifying things. And understanding we don't have the data, this is just, I don't think our listeners know what's going on in Florida without, and I really think they'd like to hear. Uh, so, so, you know, first off, let me preface it by saying I make a lot of money off of Albies and off of Jacks. A lot of money. And Cody's already cut his finger off to go fish those fish with me. I'll show you a picture of it. We got it. Um, but... You know, they're I want just, the necklace. I want half the necklace. They're, it's like the bottom bone. <laughs> I, got, I got it in a jar of alcohol. It's pretty funny. Uh, so, uh, you know, they're, they're just a fish for, for a fly guy to be able to go to go out there and sight cast and pull on something big that you know is going to get into your backing. And, uh, you know, you're going to encounter them almost every day. Um, but Oh, and Mike, um, when I fish with you, just tell them. This is not like... This isn't the Northeast where you're like, you see a herd of albies. No, we don't do to, that. You have to cast 20 feet in front of them. No, we don't do I, that. No, tell, tell them how you fish. You basically drop line behind the boat So, so with, we like, go, a, with we, like a basically a clouds, a seducer with clouser eyes, and they mm-hmm. hit it like a runaway freight train it. when it's just sitting there. We, we, go, we go to where they're, you know, where we know they're going to school, which is wherever the food is. Wherever the bait is, there's going to be plenty of albies. Or you can go offshore and get on the reef, either one. And uh, it's flat calm, so you don't have to deal with the weather. And we chum. We chum with either glass minnows or, or juvenile pilchers. It doesn't really matter. You know, it, it, it really, it's, it's a philosophy. It's a giant ocean, and the fish are always swimming. They're just kind of looking for a place, you know, for food. They're, they look for three things. They look for, they look for comfort. They look for a steady source of food, uh, and every now and then they want to reproduce. They're kind of like a guy. And if you can, you can do it two ways. You can drive all over the ocean and hope to drive in front of them with the food that you're putting out behind the boat, or you can go out there and start your own food supply. And trust me, when you start your food supply, they're coming to you. So you pull up on a, you pull up where there's a, where there's already a school of bait, and you anchor up, or I, I spot lock with my trolling motor, and you start chumming. And I mean, it's nothing to have 15 or 20 albies behind the boat at any given time. And they, you know, they probably average 15, 18 pounds. 
and you can just catch them. I mean, for, for a lot of guys, a lot of my fly guys who've never even caught a saltwater fish, um, you know, they're going to wear you out pretty quickly. So uh, I, I, I fish them a lot and I make a lot of money off them and they, they save a lot of days as well. Uh, but that being said, we have two major issues going on with the Albies and um, one is the sharks. I mean, the sharks have gotten so bad, um, <clears throat> particularly in South Florida from, from about Jupiter down, um, that, that they're just eating one after another after another. And you, if you stop your boat within five minutes, you have a, you have a shark underneath it. Most of them are, are you know, 400 pound bull sharks and they just park on your boat and they just eat everything you reel in. So, um, if you get out there, there's guides that are go out there and just fish. And they're chumming and, you know, the sharks are taking every fish. They don't land a fish all day, but, they, you know, we pulled on 25. So, you know, you basically killed 25, you know. So there's a, there's a high mortality rate to that as opposed to catching them and letting them go where there was a very low mortality rate. And then the other side of it is now there's a, a major commercial fishery for for what we call bonitas. You guys call them albies, little tunnies. Um the guys are catching, they get five bucks a, a fish whole, and they're catching three to 5,000 pounds a day. And, and I mean, it, there's a, a handful of like, commercial guys doing it. This is not a, like an industrialized net fishery. You have another hand, they're, they're catching them by hand. Yeah. But, you know, heavy tackle and just winch them in before the sharks can get them and throw them in the boat, unhook them, put another bait, I'll catch another one. They're just, they're just out there assembly line chumming. And just wiping them out. And, and, this, you know, and these it, are like these are like people who don't really necessarily rely on commercial fishing for an income. These are like guys who do it like one or two days a week because they know they can make some good bucks. A lot of them are, a lot of them, but some of them are, are full time hook and line commercial okay. guys. It's more it's more um, financially viable for them to do that than it is to snapper fish. Because the sharks are eating all their snapper. And they can just go out there and just whack the bonitas all day and come home and make, you know, $1,000, $2,000, just catching bonitas. And where they go, you know, I know some are used for strip baits for offshore. I don't know what the rest of them are done with. Cat food, whatever. I'm sure it's nothing um, beneficial. And you feel like when this fishery took off, It's always it's it it's going downhill. All of our fisheries are going downhill. Although although I'll tell you this, this year and last year I saw a resurgence in the jack cravals, in the big jacks that I hadn't seen. It's probably been fifteen years that I've seen that many big, big fish. I mean, we we get schools of jacks every year, and some years most of the jacks are ten to fifteen, twenty pounds. Um, but in the last couple of years, they've there's been a lot of thirty and forty pound fish in there. Which is nice to see. Big schools of, of the fish. For some reason, people are leaving them, but they commercially fish the jacks as well. And, and I think that's they commercially like they, they're more interested in juvenile jacks. I think that yes, they correct. Um, which but, is you know, you know, you're just, all you're doing is eroding the bottom of the that's bottom correct. of the ladder there. So like, what do you, you know? What are you that's doing? Correct. But I, so how, like, just out of curiosity, how long has this algae fishery been? really cranking 
don't, it's only been going for like two years now. Huh. And but, guess how but, long it's been since we've seen like big numbers of allergies. But I mean, they're they're two years. they're impacting it. There's no doubt yep. they're impacting it. And the, and the same with the number of fish that are eaten by the sharks. It's it has a impact. Sure. Um, and we see it with our cobia. You know, the, we don't have cobia anymore. I, I haven't caught a cobia in two years. And, and that was this, your bread and butter. That's this is really a time when we should be right yeah. in the middle of our Kobe run, and I should be catching, you know, I should see them every day. I shouldn't necessarily say I catch a bunch, but, you know, I should see a school of Kobe every day when I'm running the beach. And I haven't seen any in a couple of years myself. They're, they're just, they're not here. And the guys are catching a few, you know, here and there. But, um, you know, you hear the same story. And, and you'll hear guys, I'll hear, I'll hear recreational anglers say, um, you know, oh, we caught, you know, we got our limit of cobia today, but we lost eight in the meantime. You know, we caught two, but we lost, we fed eight others to sharks to catch our two. And, uh, I, you know, I don't get that mentality. You know, you're sacrificing your whole fishery for two fish. Uh, you, you keep that up, it, uh, there's a reason why there's not cobia around. And it's a, uh, also it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy because the more that people do that, the more that the fish become trained. Sure. And the harder it is to get away from them. And, and, and listen, you know, not very long ago, we didn't have a shark issue. Um, I, 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 I related to the BP oil spill personally. The year after the BP oil spill, all of a sudden we had sharks all over our reefs and wrecks out of nowhere. And, you know, one year, one year later, and all of them were adults. You know, it wasn't like we were seeing, and we still don't see a ton of juveniles in the inshore nursery. Um, we, I see them every now and then, but I don't see them everywhere. The adults are everywhere, and they're all, I mean, a small one's 300 pounds. And just everywhere you go right now, there's bull sharks. And it's creeping up towards me. I'm a little bit north. I'm still about 20 miles north of those guys. Uh, but we still have shark issues here. We have them on our wrecks and all here pretty bad, but we don't have them. It's not like in the open water as much, uh, but uh, and this is a really good example. I, I had I had never ever heard of a sailfish eaten by a shark ever until three years ago, and now it I mean it's common for a sailfish to be eaten by a shark or four sharks. You know you got one on and they just massacre it right in front of the you know they wait till it gets tired and can't fight gets near the boat and they just come up and just piecemeal it out in 10 seconds. I guess we probably And, and, and same deal. I, I had never seen them. The, the big schools of jacks are on the beach in the springtime, and I had never seen them in, in the big schools of jacks. We would see hammerheads on them. The hammerheads will come on them uh, usually May, right before the tarpon show up, and they'll, they'll feed on the jacks. Even April, you'll see them too. And they'll feed on the jacks until the tarpon show up, and then they move to the tarpon. But... Uh, I had never seen bull sharks on them, and this year, you know, we've seen them a bunch. More more often than not. Yeah, that's, you know, uh, everything just seems like it's just out of balance. And, it is. And, um, you know, me and you are, are self-taught in uh, everything that we know, you know, about the resource sat down and started reading reading and trying to figure it out nobody cared to you know tell us that we didn't have the, the wherewithal
It's reversible. You know, everything God. everything is reversible. I think. Yeah. Everything is reversible. And I, and I don't, I'll tell you, buddy, like, I don't think me and you kind of come from the same cloth. And I, I feel like, uh, you know, like we didn't wake up and want to be activists. And we don't want to fight this stuff like every day. We'd love for it just to be fixed. But, you know, I think we need a little bit of help. And, and it's interesting, you know, I guess to kind of make this thing come full circle. We all have our own expertise, you know, we, for example, you know, captains, the group that you're with, they're experts in clean water and they know everything about the reservoirs, CERN, funding, the different kinds mm-hmm. of bacteria, you know, linking the politicians, you guys pushed so hard, you made, you made clean water the issue in the last governor's election, last gubernatorial election in the state. First time I've ever seen that happen in my life. And and you guys are the clean water experts. Uh, you know, BTT, man, they know an awful lot. Fish habits. Bonefish. Fish habits. I mean, man, do they know, or they're just piling science up about those species and, and really you know, really taking it, taking it to the extremes of, of what we know about these fish and learning more every day. So like kudos to them. And then you look at like the guides association and you're like, well, you know, what are, what are you guys special? We're the policy. We're the ones who understand, you know, state and federal management and how you get from A to B because once you, it's, you know, there's three legs mm-hmm. to the stool, right? You have to have, you have to have the habitat, you have to have the clean water, and you have to have... And, and listen, good management is, and, is crucial. And, and I'll, I'll tell you from yeah. the start, the way fish should be managed should be that the average angler, not a fishing guide, not a guy who fishes all the time that's hardcore, any schmo should be able to go out on the water, either, you know, from land or by boat or whatever, and have a, a you know, the chance of catching a fish. That's how the species. Reasonable expectation. Of yeah, well, that, you know, that's how they should be managed so that you actually have a reasonable chance of catching something. And, um, 
you know, there's, there's much like in politics, there's all these little agendas and stuff that people have, um, even on the state level where you just wonder, you know, who's, who's seeing this stuff. And, and, uh, you know, like the, the American Saltwater Guides Association, when you look at guides, guides are on the water, they see stuff and you can tell them, oh, you know, these fish are coming back and they'll go, that's not what I'm seeing. You know, and it, 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 a, a classic example of this is I, I was at this, the Florida Snook Symposium last week in Orlando. And they were telling me that the, so they, they've bumped the SPR, the spawning potential ratio, which is the, the number of fish that have to survive to keep the population going. Um, when I first went to these, the SPR was around 32%. Now it's up to 40%. And they're saying that on the, on the Atlantic side, Snook are at 52%. And on the uh, Gulf side, they're at 54%. And I'm telling you, you know, we have the worst snook fishing I've ever seen in my life. And it's going down demonstrably every year. Um, I would tell you 20% of the fish come in the inlet to spawn that came in, in the inlet eight or 10 years ago. And, and eight or 10 years ago, a quarter of the fish were coming in that, were, that came in 20 years ago. Um, and to go catch a fish, you know, to go catch snook, um, you know, eight years ago I shot for 30. Now I shoot for 10 in a day and I struggle a lot and I, you know, I've been doing it 35 years. So I, I don't just have an A or B or C spot. I've got a, I've got two alphabets to go through and I'm struggling. And then you have new guys who are struggling too. They just have the A and B spot. So, um, you know, one of their arguments was that the fish are moving offshore. You know, when those fish that they what they found is if a fish moves offshore, uh, you know, comes in with the spawn that moves offshore, it never comes back inshore again. So they're changing habits and moving offshore. So they're basing, you know, their 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 counts on fish that they're seeing offshore as well as um, an expanded range because of the warming temperatures. Um, but what I'm telling you is. You know, in my town, snook fishing is is a husk of what it used to be, and a husk of what it was four, five, six years ago. Even, I mean, it's it's really going downhill, and I'm seeing it. And um, the only, you know, way for me to interpret this is you're saying the if the numbers are there, if that number if that's true, then now snook are going to become a fish that we go offshore and get on the wrecks and grouper fish style, you know, up and down. We don't, we don't have a fish eating a topwater plug on the shoreline or, or eating flies under the docks at night. They're all going to move offshore. Uh, uh, They're saying the same thing about stripers. And I got to tell you, I I really question. Well, every every tournament, I mean, let's take the Martha's Vineyard striped bass and bluefish derby. I mean, they've kept records on how many fish are caught. All you got to do is look at the numbers. Yeah, and Mike, you know, to say that, like, who's to say that those fish weren't friggin' offshore all they the time? Been. Certainly and nobody, could have been. Nobody, and nobody even yeah. cared because there were so many fish yeah. inshore. But because of the bad water and loss of habitat and juvenile fish not surviving, I mean, look, if salmon go back to the same river that they spawned in, is it reasonable for us to suggest that American shad? River herring, you know, 
striped bass. Any of migratory species would do the same thing. Striped bass. Any, my, any species that spawns inshore goes back to their yep. natal rivers. With the, you know, very few variances in there. So if the river is has been, you know, completely changed and it doesn't offer the same ability, you know, a dam goes in, you flush pretty much like death water down the river for months at a time, that population is going to be impacted. And then all of a sudden they, you know, they do something and they find this fish that went off. Well, where's your 50 year baseline? Where, where, where's the, where's the information that 50 years ago that this, that, that there wasn't a population that was offshore to begin with mm-hmm. because fish do different shit. And just to blame it on that, come on, man. Like, you know what? Pull the other one. Like, I, I don't, you know, you're, there's, there's an 800 pound gorilla in the room. And nobody wants to bring it up. Right? Everybody wants to ignore it. And nobody wants, they just want to offer a convenient excuse to not do the when, difficult work when, to bring it back. When 65% right? of the habitat is gone, you know, then uh, the habitat only holds so many fish. That's just how it is. I'm sorry. It's a. It's probably a mathematical yeah. formula, and different habitats, like a, sh- you know, let's take snook for example. Shoreline's only going to hold so many fish because it will only hold so much forage. Um, you know, shrimp can't hide around a piling, and they can't. Pinfish can't hide around that. When they're in the open, they get eaten by the jacks and the ladyfish, and the, you know, a lot of sure. a lot of the fast moving fish that come through in big schools and just wipe out large areas. So, I mean, you're, you're talking 35% of the habitat is here that was here eight years ago, uh, you know, and. But the, but the snook moved on. Yeah. The, come on, okay. man. Sure. Come on. Sure. Uh, it, it, you don't have to be that. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Well, you know, we shouldn't even try. We just go offshore to catch them. Uh, well, I think that's what they're telling me. Try to make things better, right? Me. You know, it's unbelievable. I mean, some of the stuff we hear is unbelievable. And I, Mike, we're, I think we're well beyond an hour now. And I think the only That's because you talk a lot. Have, dude, I've got, I'm just, I, I have such an issue. I have just a giant freaking blabber mouth. Well, uh, you know, it, 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 I feel bad. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm just the harbiter of doom and gloom. But, you know, there, there are too. success stories out there. And, and you see them. I mean, they saw them in striped bass. When you leave them alone and you protect them and you manage them correctly, they come back. And yep. when you clean up the waterways, it comes back. Yep. Nature will, will, you know, it's amazing. And it'll, it'll revitalize it. And, and you create the habitat, the fish will go. The, the food will show up. It's a, you know, it's a... It, and that is not, just to be clear, the habitat is not growing friggin' concrete. In the no, it's not. No, habitat no, no. is grass beds yeah, and correct. water and, and shellfish and all the shit. That you know, reef balls, are, reef balls are nice to an extent where there's nothing. Yeah. But but it's not natural habitat. And it's it no. doesn't have the food chain, the food web that natural habitat does. And it, you know, no, uh, and, it, and there's, a certain, there's a certain thing where it aggregates fish right. and makes them easier to catch. So there's like a negative aspect. That's true. That's and it pulls from other areas as well. So, I mean, let's, you know, when, when Mike's saying habitat, I know this because I know Mike really well, but when Mike's saying habitat, he's saying bring it back to the pristine thing that he grew up with. Um, because that is literally, that could be like the bread basket, you know, and dry 
mm-hmm. motors and fishing tackle and all hotels and restaurants. Hotels, and nobody, restaurants. you know, guys aren't going fishing as a group. They're bringing their families. They're coming out and they're hanging out. There's a big trickle down to the economy through oh, fishing. Yeah, and you're, and you know what? You're also making up to your wife for fishing. That's all definite. So you're going to a couple of stores and you're getting. Well, doing all that uh, kind of stuff. when we talk about habitat too, uh, I mean, the key word probably there is nursery, nursery habitat. Oh, Start yeah, at the absolutely. beginning, you know, um, you, you need to have a habitat for the, for the forage as well as for all the juvenile fish. And, you know, most of the offshore species start inshore. So you look at, you know, you look at the snappers and groupers and stuff. They all African pompano, they all grow up in the, in the river. Yeah, they just march their way out as they and grow up. You know? when, when that habitat's not there, now what? Now they're displaced and they're trying to survive among their own, which are cannibalistic anyway. And, you know, you offset that balance. It's it's never going to go good. Well, listen, buddy. I think uh, for no other reason that I love catching up with you, I think we're just going to have a part two of this. We should do it. Here's the deal. Part two on the water. 